The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Katie Bulls and James Heal. It was the first PMQs after the summer recess. Katie, can you tell us what happened? Yes, we're in that slightly strange parliament return before conference season. I think when you speak to MPs, they say it can often feel a bit driftless and directionless because everyone knows they're about to be off for several weeks, and and really, it's conference season that kickstarts the next phase for both leaders and so forth. Prime Minister's questions, I think to no one's surprise, Keir Starmer went on schools, school closures. He tried to accuse this government of effectively being similar to cowboy builders over Rack. And then Rishi Sunak hit back by trying to suggest that Captain Hindsight, Keir Starmer, hadn't ever really been very interested in the issue. And it's not as though Labour had been, uh, or Keir Starmer specifically, had raised this previously. There's now a row ongoing as to whether the kissed armor was all over rack before it happened and i think that if you for example in a speech he, he did refer to cr- schools crumbling however schools can crumble for he didn't say because of bubbly concrete <laughs> um, and and often you know you do hear labor painting that picture of austerity decline the crumbling buildings so i think both sides are trying to say that that is you know one side saying that doesn't count and the other side um saying look look you know he doesn't need hind- hindsight he had brilliant foresight who came out on top i think that it's one of those ones where i think that you Keir Starmer clearly had his front, his new front bench team, um, you know, sat with him. So it looked fairly refreshed. Um, you know, have Hillary Benn, I think one of the surprise returns in his reshuffle. But then I, I think that Rishi Sunak had, you know, decent support. The benches were full. Um, it's always a bit of a telltale sign, I think, not when people stop to make much noise behind you, but when it just looks as though people aren't bothering to show up. And this time, at least, it did seem as though Rishi Sunak had decent support. I thought it was interesting also that what Starmer did to give it a slightly new twist on rack was by going after schools which were in Tory Marshall constituencies. So in West Bromwich West, majorities less than 4,000, Darlington, Sedgefield, Keeley. And therefore, that's a good way of kind of getting a very easy clip for your local candidate there to get it out Mm. there. And I think that's so far something I've noticed in the three days back is I already think that Labour's graphic and digital game has stepped up a notch. And that obviously was a big part of the Conservatives' um, um, new electoral strategy in 2019 in terms of making sure they had lots of sort of new agencies and new ways in which getting the message out there. So I think that's something to watch. And as has tended to be the theme of this week, you've had the Tories trying to play down effectively or highlight the fact this is a small portion of schools that are really affected by this. So Rishi Sunil was talking about the 1% that are currently have rack. He was saying, you know, we are looking at whether it could be more, but this will, you know, lots of these schools, the things will be fixed in a case of days and weeks. And I think it's an interesting juxtaposition because in a way it feels as though the Tories ultimately, you know, they changed their guidance on this and they came out and said, here's an issue. But then if you are going to say something's a problem, you want almost a calm mm. strategy to about how you're going to deal with it. Instead, it felt a little bit loose, I think, earlier in the week. And I think now it feels much more as though they're, tr- they're trying to regiment this and say, 
if we, we did say this was a big thing, but is actually still a fairly small thing in the grand scale of things. It's obviously tricky in the choreography of how they started. And again, also it shows, I think, the fact that Michael Gove's comments, you know, on building schools for future meant that I think what was actually a pretty good response for the Sunak on Labour's attack line about, well, we had building schools of future in 2010. Mm. Gove later said that he regretted cancelling that. And I think that shows the difficulty of being a party 13 years in government. It's not just the previous policies you're attacked about. It's also the personnel as well and having people in your top team who've said things that can come back to haunt them. Yeah. And James, we're now a year on from the great premiership of Liz Truss. Looking back on that now with a bit more hindsight, celebrating that anniversary, can we look back on that time in a more positive light than perhaps we saw it back then? Well, I think that, you know, talking to Tory, a couple of Tory MPs today about it in the House, I think some of them started getting haunted looks thinking about that time last year as we're coming into conference season. I think that there's a certain argument which I think is finding a bit of favour in the Conservatives in that I think Liz Truss did have, to some extent, bad luck. Obviously, she made errors, which we've talked about and written about endlessly. But in terms of, you know, for instance, the figures that came out last mm. week, the GDP revision's gone up in terms of the economy recovering, in terms of we were entering an, int- an era in which low interest rates were at coming to an end. And also the fact that the, the forecasts has also since subsequently proven to not be what they were. I think perhaps there's a sense of Liz Truss clearly made mistakes, but the issues which her premiership revolved around did not go away with her departure, basically. And a year on, I think Rishi Sunak is finding, obviously using the example of Liz Truss about sometimes not, not to do in terms of things like parliamentary management, is finding that just because you've got someone who is experienced in government and lots of people around you doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a much easier ride. Katie, do you think Liz Truss will feel hard done by now? I mean, I think she does feel hard done by. We did her first interview mm. since she left number 10, uh, myself and Fraser. And it was quite clear from that that, you know, she, she accepted she hadn't behaved perfectly. But there's plenty of blame that she thinks for other people. And I think that can at times come across a little bit tone deaf when you speak to some in the party or some who worked in operation. But it clearly isn't all down to one person. I think James is right to point out that there are some factors that made things probably speeded up the rate in which things went wrong. But I also think that this trust did know she was taking risks and was almost gambling it to a degree. I think because she had been in government for such a long period of time with, uh, you know, different leaders, she served on David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson. I think she felt acutely aware that often your premiership is not really in your control. Something will come up, a big event, and all of a sudden, you know, your grand plan on your manifesto, things you want to do, has to take a back seat. And obviously with the Queen's passing, she very quickly on had a taste of that, which was, um, you know, politics just stopped. And I think all that added to a sense of, you know, just do everything at once in that mini budget, which clearly did backfire. And that was a political decision she made. I think the fact that she told such a small number of her team what she was planning to do and some of the things like the top rate of tax mm. does imply too that she knew it was a, risky thing to do and something that perhaps would likely leak but also something that some might try and talk you down from and therefore you know I think there's culpability or culpability in, in various places but it, it's the prime minister at the time who makes those decisions so I think there's lots of lessons from it I think that the complaint you often hear when people talk about Rishi Sunak you know is at least Liz Trust tried to change things mm. and sometimes when you listen to Labour talk about you know we're going for growth they don't sound that different to Liz mm. Trust um, of course I think they would try and go about it in some places in different ways but they're talking about supply side reform and also growing their economy and then using that to to spend the money so it does feel as though perhaps her diagnosis of the problem not I think 
the way that she then tried to solve it. But the diagnosis will be around for a lot longer. I mean, James, you wrote a piece over the weekend, of course, we are with you, a biographer of Liz Truss, where you documented her different days. So I wondered to, to end our podcast, perhaps you could just tell us, you know, what do you think were three of the most interesting days Liz Truss had in that short-lived premiership? I think the Sunday when it was the first day of the Tory conference, she had to start her day with an interview with Laura Koonsberg and sitting just yards away on the sofa was Michael Gove, who with relish uh, dropped her in it. And then, of course, it, that day ended with the 45p tax U-turn at uh, midnight when the news came out. So I think that day was up there. I'd say also, I think, you know, the death of the Queen on the day when she was expecting to, in the House of Commons, had to sit there knowing what was probably going to come that day, that Thursday. And then the death of the Queen, of course, completely threw off all questions about the energy package. And I think finally, the last day of her time in office, when I think the absurdity, or perhaps magnificent, whatever you want to put it, of British politics was revealed when it, it is discovered by her private office that there wasn't a car to take her back from, the, the, her family back from the palace one after she resigned. And they had to then spend the final hours of a NATO nuclear power premier trying to work out how they could get this, the prime minister and their family back home. Is that because at that point she is no longer the prime minister, so she loses yeah. the car? I think it's the family as well and the, yeah. the team around them. So what do they go for? I, I I don't know that. Okay, that would be for part two of the biography. <laughs> That's for the second year. And then you also wrote about the meal when she decided that she was going to step down. Yeah, there was some white wine and uh, pork pie involved. Yeah. Obviously, Sophie B. And um, one can only hope. <laughs> Katie, James, thank you so much. And thank you very much for listening.